Well, good morning, church. So, if you haven't gotten the hint, Robert is not here. I'm not Robert. Um, so, luckily all of y'all are familiar faces, so you all know me. Um, but yes, Robert is out of town this weekend uh, with Mel, um, and they're enjoying uh, their time together off. And so I get the honor and privilege of sharing the word with you all this morning. Um, as we continue through our sermon series of the genesis of everything, um, as we continue through the books of Genesis, and I uh, get to share this uh, story of Sarah and Hagar, um, a very loaded story, but one that as I've spent my time studying it, um, I've seen uh, the great beauty found in it. And so, um, But first, I want to share a little bit of a, a story from my life um, to kind of um, see some of the, the ways that this story plays out um, in our day-to-day. And so, uh, some of you know this, I spent a couple summers in Houston, um, working at this place called Mission Centers of Houston. It's a wonderful organization uh, that seeks to help uh, low-income families as well as the homeless within the inner city of Houston uh, through myriads of programs such as food banks, depending on resources, even clothing. Um, There was kids programs as well as programs for the senior citizens who many times were living by themselves. Um, And so a wonderful organization that I loved um, working with that after working one summer, I went back another summer to to work there again. So a wonderful place. And the first time I was there um, in the kids program, there was uh, one boy who I got to spend a lot of time with, um, super energetic kid, like one of the most energetic kids I think I've ever met. Um, If he, like, he was always running constantly, no matter what. Um, And it was a bit of a hassle sometimes during like times of teaching to be like, sit down, please. This is, this is time to, to relax, chill. We don't have to be high energy here. Uh, but it was also super fun to just uh, hang out with him, play games with him. We had this one game called Jump the River where it seemed like he would just fly through the sky. And I was over there destroying my shins on this concrete gym trying to keep up with him. Um, so loved this kid so much. However, one day, um, as Kids Club starts, Um, he kind of comes in and just like sits there in the corner and does nothing. Um, Is silent the whole time, won't really respond to anything. And this is so counter of what this kid normally does at all. And so the whole time I'm trying to talk to him and he just doesn't want to talk. He's completely shut down. And so after, uh, you know, the kids go uh, back home, uh, I talked to some of the regular staff that worked there, you know, year long asking him, like, hey, this, this kid, he shut down today for some reason. He was just completely out of it. Um, and in having conversation with him, I learned that his grandmother had passed away earlier that day. Um, but not only that, but there was an incident, because she, she was in a car accident, and there was mistreatment of the body, and this nine-year-old boy ended up seeing that, which was like, I was like, no wonder this kid shut down. This, this kid is, like, hurting and in pain and is suffering greatly. And so I sought to spend as much time as I could with this kid, but he was hurting a lot. Um, Now, some of you are very familiar with suffering, maybe even this exact type of suffering, or maybe your own kind of suffering, but I don't think it takes much for us to know that suffering is here, present on earth. Um, I mean, the world even knows this. It acknowledges. It doesn't ignore the fact that suffering is present. Its solution seems to be if we can just all be good and come together, like everyone can do this, we can end suffering. However, without God, 
we will all fail and fall, and the cycle will continue. Humanity has no hope in itself to try to achieve these things of ending suffering. Um, and because we know the root of that is, is sin. Um, so even for me, as much as I wanted to help that boy, um, there was, I, was, I was not the answer to his hurt and pain. Um, God, God is. God was the answer to that. And we're going to see that, I think, very beautifully here in this passage. So if you walk away with one thing um, out of all of this, I hope that this is what you walk away with. And that is that we will fail and fall short, resulting in sin, sin that will tear us apart from our relationship with God. However, God sees us in our sin and suffering from our sin and still pursues us in keeping his covenant with us. So we're continuing on this like covenant conversation that we see here with Abram. And this passage is kind of uniquely sandwiched here in between these two talks of covenant between God and Abram. We saw that last week as Rob continued, but we saw kind of the beginnings of that in Genesis chapter 13 in verses 15 through 17, which says, uh, this is God speaking to Abram saying, for all the land you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. And last week, Rob preached on this kind of ceremony that's done that's God demonstrating his faithfulness of going to go fully through that. Um, so if you want to hear more about that and that description, Rob preached a wonderful sermon last week. Um, so you can tune into our podcast and it's already up there and, and listen to it. Or you can also join us afterwards uh, at Lazarus where we can talk more about the sermon. Uh, we also see in the next chapter, in chapter 17, another act of demonstration of this covenant as God calls Abram and his whole family to circumcision. And we find this in uh, Genesis 17, verses 9 and 10, which says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And so this passage sits right in between those kind of two acts of demonstration of the covenant. But Rob kind of alluded to this last week in that we may read this as pretty successive of like this covenant demonstration between God, this story where we just heard Jacob read and then continued covenant conversation with God. But in reality, there are many, 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 many years happening in between these time periods. So it's not like Sarah and Abram heard last week this covenant that God made with them, but they're kind of still in this waiting um, and even we see specifically with Sarai kind of sitting in this waiting, as Rob mentioned last week, of her not having children. Um, as we open here in verse 1 of chapter 16, which says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And so we're introduced to Sarai's plight immediately here, as well as to this uh, other woman, Hagar. And then the passage really jumps in immediately into... Sarai's lack of faith, um, which I think leads to the, the first thing that we need to understand um, and we'll see in this passage is that humans will sin, we will fail and fall short. We are amongst that and amongst this. And we see this in verse 2 where uh, Sarai, uh, where it's stated, and Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And so we see Sarah make this statement 
essentially saying, I can't, I can't have children, but God's made this promise, so I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to cause, I'm going to use my natural means um, to make this promise true rather than believing in the supernatural power of God and God's ability to do the impossible. Because he's declared to them, this child will be yours, um, and it will come from you. You saw this last week when Rob uh, talked about how Abram proposed, like, oh, is it going to be Eleazar that inherits all this? And God says, no, this is coming from you. And so now we can give them a bit of the benefit of the doubt in that this story takes place early on in the Old Testament where they don't have the faith examples that we have today of the whole Bible, um, as well as the stories of Christians that have lived their lives in faith towards God. However, there's been, I think, plenty of, of evidence of the supernatural power of God for them to look at, and we've kind of been covering this as we go through this sermon series in Genesis. I mean, you talk about the creation story, that's God doing the literal impossible of creating something out of nothing. We also see the story of Noah and the flood where, you know, People are like, this is insane. There's not going to be rain so much that this whole earth floods and everything's covered in water, and God does exactly that. We even see in the story of the Tower of Babel that uh, Robert preached um, where language is created. This idea of not being able to communicate clearly was not a thing that had been done before, and yet God does this thing. So there are examples of God's supernatural power to do the impossible, but for some reason we see humanity here, Sarai, and we're going to see Abram as well, have this lack of faith in God to do the impossible and fulfill what he says he will do. So, and not to just throw Sarai under the bus, but we're going to see here that really everyone present here is showing this lack of faithfulness. Um, We see this from Abram. He has this passivity and lack of faith. Um, As we don't get a response from Abram to Sarai's you know, statement. He, it just says he listened to the voice of Sarai and then took action. And so there's no recorded response of objection, um, but I think there would be if, 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 if Abram did have a response, like, no, we should not do this. Uh, but instead, it just says that Abram kind of went along with it, which, again, this character of Abram, this person who's going to uh, be the, the vessel for this covenant Um, which, you know, we may look upon and be like, wow, such a great individual. I mean, God decided to use him to do this. But we see even early on before this um, that Abram is human just like us and has demonstrated this lack of faith before. And we see this when uh, earlier on in Genesis, in Genesis 12, where Abram and Sarai end up in Egypt. Sarai, his wife, um, it says in the Bible that she was beautiful And so Abram's answer to this is to say, I don't want to die because they'll, you know, take you and kill me. Um, So pretend to be my sister. Uh, Now, I don't know about y'all, but asking your wife to pretend to be your sister uh, so you don't die doesn't seem very loving of, doesn't seem like a loving act of a good husband, uh, but more someone who's focused on self-preservation and doing what's needed. And because of this, Sarai ends up in Pharaoh's house, um, to do with whatever Pharaoh wishes. Uh, but then we see what happens because of this in Genesis twelve seventeen, where it says, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Even Pharaoh, his response is like, why did you tell me this was your sister? 
instead of your wife, like almost telling him, like, what kind of husband are you? Um, and they get removed from Egypt from there, where they had it actually pretty solid, it describes in the Bible there, because of Abram's um, just lack of faith and even a lack of care for his wife there, um, which we see this, and then we even see this story, and yet God still continues to hold up his covenant with Abram that he made in chapter 13, or before then, um, and we'll iterate in that demonstration in chapter 15. But we see very clear Abram's, again, lack of faithfulness, um, as we see in the second half of verse 2 leading to the first half of verse 4, where it says, And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. So we see sin's immediate presence here as we see a breaking of covenant marriage as Hagar now becomes Abram's wife. Um, this covenant marriage between Abram and Sarai, now he shares with another woman, um, Hagar, who's become an equal. Um, and we talked about this at the beginning, and we're going to see a lot of parallels between Abram and Sarai and Adam and Eve of the sanctity of covenant marriage between one man and one woman. And yet, they make those faults there in the fall, and we see a lot of these faults reoccurring. Um, now, this is not some rare occurrence of a lack of faithfulness and falling into sin that seems to just be present in these two stories or in some of the other stuff we've talked about so far, but this is a recurring theme and cycle that keeps happening over and over again. Now, recently, myself, I've spent time reading the book of, of Kings and Chronicles parallel to the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and so you see these actions that some of these kings and people of Israel take, and then you see a lot of the consequences and judgment that's stated in Jeremiah and Ezekiel of just this constant Israel falling into sin um, and doing the exact opposite of what calls, God calls them to. Um, we see even a, a very distinct example of this in Jeremiah 42, where we see the commanders of Israel's forces in a time of need, and they ask Jeremiah the prophet to plead to God for mercy. What should we do? We're asking God, what should we do? And Jeremiah calls to God, and God gives them instruction saying this is clearly what you should do, and even goes beyond that of saying, if you do not do this, this will occur to you. I'm going to tell you what's good and what's bad. And yet they have a refusal of these commands and do the exact opposite. And we see this in Jeremiah 42, verses 21 and 22, which says this, And I have this day declared it to you, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God in anything that he sent me to tell you. Now, therefore, know for a certainty that you shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence in the place where you desire to go live. And this is just one of many stories. You can even go outside those books um, of seeing in the Bible recurring unfaithfulness from humanity. And I know myself, I can think of my own stories um, where I've demonstrated my own unfaithfulness and living in sin. And the Bible makes it very, very clear that all of humanity is stuck in this cycle. We see this first in Romans, uh, or one example in Romans 3.10, where it says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And we see repeated again in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So even though we're seeing this one contained example in, in this story of Sarah and Hagar, I think it's meant to kind of set this tone of, this is the cycle humanity is stuck in. Um, of sin. We are sinful creatures. And 
This story also tells us what the result of that sin is. And that is that sin will break down relationship and bring suffering to us. We see this starting in the back half of verse 4 where it says, And when she, this being Hagar, saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So Hagar is already having this division between her and Sarai. Um, as when she's pregnant, she looks at Sarai and says, I did what you could not. This thing that we've seen iterated over and over again of Sarai could not bear children, and there's this clear desire for her to do this. And even this create, giving a descendant to Abram finally, a true descendant, a highly valued thing for them. Hagar's like, I was able to do it, and you, you couldn't. And... I was the lowly servant, that's now his wife, and the one that's given him an inheritor. And we see Sarai's response to this, and this division between her and Abram now. In verse 5, where it says, And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So she tells Abram, you shamed me, and the Lord's judgment is upon him, because this is your wife that is looking on me with contempt. So as the husband, you need to do something about this. And so we see their marriage beginning to start to fall. And we see Abram's response, another response of not a great husband uh, and continued division of marriage, um, of both his marriages now. As we see in verse 6, where it says, But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So Sarai says, Abram, this is your wife, and she's looking at me with contempt. Do something about it. And Abram tells her, She's your servant. You do something about this. Almost stripping the title of wife from Hagar of saying, no, she's your servant. You go deal with her. Which, for them, the title of wife is definitely supersedes the title of servant. Yet Abram says, you go deal with it. My hands are clean. Again, sounds very similar to the fall in the garden when God talks to Adam and says, what happened? And Adam immediately says, it's Eve's responsibility. My hands are clean. It's She's the one who did it. This woman that you've given me, it's her fault. These, these are the first marriages we see in the Bible. Between human, two humans where a husband is blaming a wife. And I think it's very much set there to, to show that even though there's this desire for covenant marriage to, to model this relationship God, that God has with us, we are humans and we fall. And so as much as we desire to perfectly keep this covenant, um, we, we will fail at that. And I think you can ask almost any married person um, who is a follower of Christ, and they will probably agree with you in that they fail in their marriage over and over again. And then we see this final destruction now of relationship as it says, Sarai dealt harshly with her, Hagar, and she fled from her. I mean, Sarai essentially abuses Hagar so much 
that Hagar runs away. Hagar is a servant, supposed to be connected to Sarai, um, of assisting her. And Hagar perceives herself in so much danger that she breaks that promise as well. Whatever transaction occurred to where Hagar was a servant of Sarai, she says, this is not worth it, and I'm running away. And we see another relationship broken. And we see from the description, as we're going to see in verse 7, uh, that she's most likely running back to Egypt, back home where she is from, and probably where she was picked up when uh, Abram and Sarai were there. So we see the relationships of all these three, three people fall apart right before us as a result of this sin, of this unfaithfulness. We see constant examples of this and the results of sin and how it separates us um, both from God and from each other. We see the first example here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We see another example of this, and one particularly between each other and James three fourteen through 16, where it says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. The destruction of relationship, of covenant marriage, of abuse, all present there because of our sin. Our sin causes separation and causes suffering, and as we see, as we see here in the case of Hagar. However, the story does not end there, and I'm very grateful it does not, because God sees us in all of this and brings restoration. And this brings us to the good news of this passage that we're going to see here, and that God sees us in our sin and our suffering and pursues us. We see the start of that here uh, at Genesis 16, verses 7 through 8, where it says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And so we see God ask Hagar a question. Similarly to, again, in Adam and Eve's story, when he asks them a question, even though he's very aware of what has occurred, but he asks them what, is, what has happened. Um, I think very much showing this desire that God has us, wants to have relationship with us. He doesn't want to just come in and show up and say, you all have done these things and get out of here. But he's like, what's, what's going on? I, I want to be involved in this and want to show you and demonstrate to you humans that I want to be involved in relationship. And with Hagar, this is, I think, even, even more special here in that Hagar is a servant. So given agency like this of saying, what's going on? I think is very much a foreign feeling for her, of someone taking into consideration her thoughts, feelings, actions. Because, um, I mean, we even see in this first part, it just says Sarah, Sarah is going to give Hagar to Abram. We don't see what Hagar's response is. She's just given. We also see God give agency to an Egyptian woman, someone who's not at all part of the eventual formed nation of Israel, but yet he pursues her. I think God here is already showing his heart 
for all peoples, both the low and the high, both the ones that are going to be part of this nation that blesses the world, but I think also outside of that, which he even calls in his covenant, saying from this nation the world will be blessed. We see this here as an Egyptian woman, someone outside of the future nation of Israel, is being comforted by God. And Hagar spells out plainly what's been happening of, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. These people that you made this covenant with, I'm running away from because they abused me. And I felt it better to run away than to stay here. And we see God's response to her in, in this, of her stating what is going on. Um, and we see two important things here in verses 9 through 12, where it says, The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So we see, her, we see God kind of give two things to Hagar here. We see this call of obedience to return back to this place that she's running from, which I think left alone, we would all be left with a lot of questions of go back, just go back for the sake of going back. But instead, he sends her back with a promise, one that we will see Hagar finds great joy in. We see in this promise that she will bear the child, which will be the beginning of many offspring. He even gives instruction on the name of the child, Ishmael, which means God will hear. The Lord has listened to her affliction, and he wants to, to show her that, of saying, I, I see you. I see that you are hurting. He also says that this child will be against everyone, yet will be over his kinsmen. He will be essentially a king, a very different status than that of the servant that Hagar was. So it's this immediate jump from one of the lowest to one of the highest that God gives to Hagar's child. However, this is very different from the covenant that God made with Abraham, as this is still one of turmoil, though. Um, as this is not a promise that God will fulfill that covenant that he made with Abraham through Ishmael, but it's a covenant specifically for the line of Ishmael. And we even see, again, God's ability to, to see us as he states the truth of the future of Ishmael's line in describing him as a wild donkey of a man. And as we know, um, or maybe you don't know, but as you continue to read in the Bible, you see that the descendants of Ishmael was that of warring nomads throughout history. I think definitely giving an accurate description of people who stir up maybe a little bit of trouble, maybe more than a little bit. Um, but again, God, God knows all this. He's, he's demonstrating how much he is aware of what is happening and how much he sees his people. And then we get to see Hagar's response to this, uh, starting in verse 13, where it says, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber Lahai and it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So we first see Hagar give this exclamation 
of God seeing her. This lowly servant separated from her home, both Egypt, where she was from, and Abram's household, and very broken down, and she gives this exclamation that God sees her. This is also the only occurrence that we see in the Bible of God being named in this way of saying, you are a God of seeing. No one else does this to God, saying, you see me. There's even a unique thing with the language that kind of makes it very bi-directional of God sees me, but I also see God in this. So it's not just a distant God that's exclaiming, I see you, but a God who makes himself present so that we may see him as well. And after this exclamation, um, we see Hagar obey. Very different from what Sarah and Abram had done. And so she returns to Abram and Sarai and bears the son, naming him Ishmael. And it even says that Abram was the one to name the child, which means Hagar came back and told them exactly what had just happened, saying, God told me all these things. He made this promise with me after I came from the affliction that your household caused me. And so Abram names the child in obedience to God. But seems very, at least being in Abram and Sarah's position, I think would be very difficult to hear this, of feeling so wronged or wanting to be hands-free and then having Hagar come back and saying, God saw me in my affliction and saw that I was hurting and suffering here. So what you were doing was not just. It was sinful, evil. But instead chose to make a promise. We see God pursuing his people Hagar here, but we even see continued pursuit of Abram and Sarai, as we're going to learn about next week, with another demonstration and reiteration of the covenant in chapter 17. And a bit of a spoiler, but we also know eventually that they will have a son, Abram and Sarai, named Isaac, which will result in the birth of the nation of Israel. So even after all of this, God still keeps the promise with them, saying from them a nation will be born that will bless the world. We see God's pursuit of us as well as he continues to make covenant with people, even giving the demonstration of this covenant and actually fulfilling it um, when he sent his son Jesus um, to live a life among us. And we see Jesus detail this in John 3.16, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So God sees us in our affliction, our suffering, and he calls out to us, and he wishes to pursue us. And so when we respond with our suffering, he comes to bring redemption and keep his covenant. So in the story, making the covenant with Hagar, and as we'll continue on with the story of Abram and Sarai, who become Abraham and Sarah, the continued covenant with them. And we see the gospel covenant God has made with us of sending his son to live a perfect life, to die the death that we deserve because of our sin, which separates us from God, and rise again in conquering death and creating a way for us to have eternal life with him. Because of this, we have the assurance that when he returns, we will live in that eternal life. I think approaching this passage, I definitely was a little fearful of 
how do you how do you describe what's going on of just unfaithfulness and suffering? But in taking this deep dive, I see the beauty of God pursuing his people and keeping covenant with us sinners and sufferers. It's not only that we're deserving of the pain and he sees us in that and wants to save us from that, but he also sees that we live in that pain and he cares for us and doesn't want us to stay in that. That's why he gives us the promise of eternal life with him. So in all of this, what do we do? What do we do knowing that God is this and he demonstrates this for us? Well, I think first, I think it's important that we know the covenant God makes with us. It brings hope to a life very void of hope without him. And the presence of the gospel covenant must be present in our everyday lives, for without it, again, we have nothing. So spending time in the word, reading the Bible, and seeing God's covenants with us, I think is so important because then we can find assurance in those promises, promises that we may not even know are present there. We will also see God's pursuit of us through these covenants and stories such as this one. We get to see more and more so the character of God and his love for his people. And so if you hear all this and you're like, this is awesome, God keeps his covenant, but what are they? I, I encourage you to spend time in the word and even get with someone to, to read with them um, and, and experience that joy together of seeing the promises God gives us. I think the next thing uh, to, to kind of pull from this is that God wishes us to respond to him in our affliction. God is a covenant-making God and a covenant-keeping God. He knows of sin and its effects leading to suffering and wishes to care for us in it. And again, this is just one story in which we see this of God God caring for people in affliction. If you want a whole book on this, you can go read the story of Job in which we see a man very afflicted and responding to God both in good ways and also not good ways at all. ways that I read and I get a little nervous with of if I ever did that, of calling God the things that he does. But he still calls to God in affliction, and we see God respond to him when he is not deserving of it all. So, great book. Go read it. But I, th- I think it's a, it's a call for us to, to pray, and in our, prayer life, in our prayer life, bring to God the things that afflict I feel like when the approach to prayer recently has been like, don't just bring your list to God, which is true. There's so much more aspects of prayer, of praising God for everything that he has done and repenting of the sin that we have committed. But I don't think that's a call to remove these lists of afflictions of God saying, I'm hurting, I'm suffering because of the sin present in this world. I think God very much wants us to bring those to him. I think it's not just prayer for our own affliction, but also for the affliction of others, the suffering that we see happening around us and in our world. I mean, right now, there is currently a great conflict happening um, in the Middle East that I think we can definitely all be praying for because there is suffering present there. And we can be praying for peace and the hope of God to be present amongst that. So I, I think I encourage you all to, to be praying of what's going on there and praying for the nation of Israel there as well as just everyone else involved. Um, 
and the suffering that is occurring. And I want to encourage you all as well to pray together. Um, if you are in the midst of suffering, to find someone and pray with them and have them pray with you. And if you're not in suffering, but you see someone suffering, to go to them in prayer. Um, I think that's better than trying to give any sort of self-help um, or guidance. I think the best thing to do is to pray with them and to encourage them to bring these hurts, these pains before God. And I think lastly, we should seek to remain faithful. Um, I know hearing that may seem strange as I've been describing constantly and we see in this story how much humanity fails and falls and that this is going to keep going over and over again. But I think God gives a beautiful response to this in which we see that it's not because we have this power to always remain faithful, but because God takes the little faithfulness we have to offer and does much with it. We see this in Matthew 17, 20, where it says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. It's not because of our faith. It's because God takes what the obedience that we give him and does the supernatural, the impossible, with it. God does so much, and we do so little. Yet even in the absence of our faith, God can still pursue his people to bring the power of the gospel, the promise of restoration to us sinners and sufferers. It is even, I think, from this place that we begin to see the truth that has been present all along and that we have no hope without God. So I think sometimes we walk in life and we aren't in the midst of suffering and we forget that. But that truth is abundantly clear no matter what we go through, whether we are in a time of suffering or in a time of joy, because we still need God. And so when we are in this place of hurting, I think we get to truly see the hopelessness we live in and can call out to God, um, whether it's for the first time to, to follow him or whether it's continued calling out to God in our walks with him. He constantly reminds us that he will be present with us. And we see, a re we are reminded of this covenant of the gospel with him every time we approach the table of communion here. As he has this last dinner with his disciples before he is about to go fulfill the covenant of dying the death that we deserve. And as he sits with them, he, breaks, he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body that has been broken for you. And he takes the cup as well. He says, this is the blood shed for the forgiveness of sins and keeping his covenant with us. And so this is even, as we saw last week in chapter 15, as we're going to see next week in chapter 17, this is, we do this in, rem in remembrance of God doing everything for us. This is our demonstration, our ceremony of the covenant that God keeps with us, of salvation with us. And so let me pray for us, and then we can approach the table. Dear God, thank you so much for the covenant that you keep with us, and that we fail and we fall so much, and suffering is produced from it, pain and affliction 
and yet you see us amidst all of that. You don't leave us in it, but instead you extend yourself towards us, doing everything to keep your promise so that we may have salvation, so that we may have eternal life with you, an eternal life that we do not deserve. So may we do this act in remembrance of you and the covenant that you keep with us. In your name I pray. Amen.